Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. I say, where's your actual recording device? That? Yeah. Wow, that's small. I know, right? Maybe I'll do this, actually. Because I have to carry this zoom around. It's much heavier. What is this? No, that's clearly not that's a digital device. This, this is an analog one. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this is a 16 mil camera. From the Architecture Foundation, I'm Matthew Blunderfield, and you're listening to Scaffold. In this episode, I speak with the artist Tacita Dean, who over the past three decades has produced a poetic and wide-ranging body of work comprised of everything from films and blackboard drawings to photogravures, collages, soundworks, and collections of found objects. Dean was born in 1965 in Canterbury in the UK, but for most of her life as an artist has lived outside of Britain, first in Berlin, and now between there and Los Angeles. Dean is perhaps best known for her works on 16 and 35 millimeter film, which have chronicled subjects like eclipses, out-of-date factories, elderly artists, and the setting sun, to name just a few. She's once explained that all of the things she likes are about to disappear. And this, of course, includes the medium of film itself. Dean has been an outspoken advocate for the preservation of film, which she values as much for its cultural heritage as for the ways it shapes thought and meaning. In a time where moving images can be produced almost instantaneously, the lag between film's exposure and its development creates an increasingly rare window of reflection. She's also drawn to the constraints of celluloid and the chance occurrences they produce. To Dean, the camera itself is a dark room in which exposures develop in ways beyond our control. In all her work, Dean embraces coincidence and has a real faith in subconscious thought. She doesn't direct her films so much as she creates the conditions for them to unfold. Similarly, I had no map for my interview with Dean which was recorded in October of this year, later the same day that I'd recorded my scaffold interview with architect Sam Chermayev. Sam actually kindly drove me out to her studio, an unassuming two-story house on the western edge of Berlin, and it was there in an airy ground floor room overlooking a sunlit garden that Dean and I sat down and let our conversation unfold. So here it is, my interview with the artist Tessita Dean. I hope you like it. So you have your 16mm camera by your side on the couch right now. Yes, it's not normal that I do have this level of intimacy with it, but I was filming something outside in the garden. Mm. It's a heavy piece of equipment. Yeah, that's the problem. That's why I can't do anything today, because of my bandaged hand. This is a perfect place to start, really. What, with (laughs) the bandaged hand? No, with with this with this heavy piece of equipment next to you. (laughs) You're making a point about the heavy above anything else, (laughs) is that right? So, I think you were wondering why I'm here. Yeah. Uh, Coming from the Architecture Foundation, 
as a former architect myself, wondering what it was I wanted to talk to you about. And to me, it's quite clear actually, this concern for the analog. I think there is some common ground in terms of what we see being lost now uh, in creative practice. And when we talk about architecture, there's a deep appreciation for the analog world, as well as this rapid transition towards the digital. And it's changing everything. <laughs> so there's a certain elegy that's being sung in architecture that rhymes with the elegy you're tracing of the demise of film and this attempt to somehow preserve or maintain the culture of cinema and the culture of film, if not the medium itself. Definitely the medium itself. So that's <coughs> maybe where we meet. Yeah. I'm trying to resist words like demise and, and elegy and anything that um, signifies the end. I'm trying to, you know, advocate for a plurality, which, meant, which means that, that we can, as practitioners, use both analog and digital, because there are still things analog that analog can bring that digital cannot do at all. And I, I suppose the more and more, uh, you know, inverted commas, a threatened film becomes, the more um, the more I use film to devise ways of doing things that could never be done in the digital realm. They might be able to be imitated or copied, but they would never be invented because the invention comes from the whole medium itself. Mm. And I suppose that's, uh, you know, if we want to talk about architecture, Within, within what I do. I mean, maybe the most profound architectural space I work inside is the inside a camera. Because uh, I do everything, you know, all my films are made inside the dark room, literally, which is what camera means. That's something that came to mind for me as well. The dark room of the camera and the, the camera itself being a kind of environment. Um, but just to go back to this uneasiness about words like elegy or demise, it's very hard not to use them in relation to your work, which in the past has focused on phenomena like sunsets, events like shipwrecks. In a way, we could think of you as being a chronicler of obsolescence. There's I don't this. resist that. I don't resist that because I, you know, a, it's really true that a lot of the mediums that I find favour with are threatened with obsolescence. And even when initially, you know, even when I started using them, um, they have that has happened. Obviously, the whole film and photography, photochemical thing has. But even weird things like 
you know, even the the chalk that I'm using now, I can't. It's 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 not manufactured anymore. It's full of impurities because they think it's just needed for school teachers, so that doesn't matter or or kids really. So and the spray chalk I use has now been discontinued. It's like everything. It's like a kind of curse. So um, you know, but the point about semantics and I think it is really really important topic for me mm-hmm. especially in the debate about film and and I know this because in you know obviously in 2011 um, my lab closed in London and that was the beginning of an extremely rapid um, eviction of medium eviction as somebody called it and uh you know, and then I said at a certain point later on, I realized that actually the language around the discussion was part of the problem. Um, you know, if you talk about, which was how it was talked about, that film was a technology, um, then, you know, it was bound to go into uh, obsolescence. So at a certain point, I, it just occurred to me that, because I, I, I talk about this often, and I've mentioned often, but I'll say it again because I think it's really useful. But I, you know, back in 2012, I was writing an article, a speculative article for the New York Times about the whole, you know, the importance of keeping film as a medium thing. And um, and eventually the, I had a conversation with a, an editor about it. And she just, and then, back then, she just said, well, it's, it's just technological determinism. And it was this expression, technological determinism. And I'm so glad I had that conversation because I thought, what does she mean, technological determinism? And it just made me realise it's, it's not a technology for me. It's actually my medium. And if you reframe the language as being about medium and not technology, you, are empa- you empower it because there's a history of mediums that don't go obsolete. So you recontextualize it. And, um, and then I started to go and doing all these things, reframing the future of film with Christopher Nolan, especially, and, um, and you know, repurpose language. So I said film is a medium. He uses that word now, medium. Even Kodak now say it's a medium. Mm-hmm. And if it's a medium, you can't put it in the technological deterministic grouping, which cited at the beginning was that I was a Luddite. We were anyone fighting for media, for film was a luddite, mm-hmm. and then that was the biggest problem. Is that you kind of you you pushed everyone out of the argument by you know by na- by labelling them, you know get uh, you know I mean very very aggressive language. So so stop saying end of life technology and all this stuff like that, and start saying it's a medium. You know there's been a it suffered an eclipse. This is the language I like to use. Of course, it's very literary, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. I want to go to a really early work of yours now, called "Girl Stowaway." You're raising your eyebrows. No, no, long time not <laughs> spoken about that. <laughs> so this was a work that you presented back in 1996 at the Architectural Association. Did I? You did. In the AA? Yeah. Do you mean it is a talk? It was a talk. Were you there? No. 
I remember the talk. It was captured on, on video. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This work is informed entirely by chance, the kind of chance that seems to happen to you quite often. Yeah. And this is really my first encounter with you talking about your work. Mm -hmm. You describe your discovery at a flea market, I think, of a picture of a girl. And the, the picture was called Girl Stowaway. And you took it with you, uh, put it in a bag, and you made your way to Glasgow to see a friend. The bag got lost in an x-ray machine. You sued the airport authority? I didn't sue them. I mean... <laughs> I, I did get a lawyer. Um, you threatened to. You were on your way to suing them. You called up lawyers and journalists. Mm, well, I mean, this is not quite accurate, but... The bag turned up a week later on an Aer Lingus flight. And then you said, being who I am, you made a news article yourself. And it was titled, Stowaway Slips Security on Dublin Diversion. And this set off or set in chain a whole series of events around the girl in this picture. Her name was Jean Genie. Yes. Could you take me from there on this further chain of reactions that's triggered for you? It was a very imp important project because it's, it, yes, it, it cemented a, the process that I still have today. You know, I mean, I was just finished postgraduate. I mean, I was uh, on the, you know, it was like 92 or three that I did this journey and then 93 maybe. And um, yes, you're right about the, the bag. It was my camera bag. I put it, put the, it was a photograph in a book. I put it in the bag and the, the bag just disappeared. Somebody obviously stole it, I think, possibly. But it was, the it was like the x-ray luggage, you know, the bit. And because everyone, and it was the time of the IRA and everything like that, and the fact that someone could just take your bag as you go through the arch, it felt like this was a lapse. And I mean, if I think of my audacity, I mean, I, someone must have put me in touch with Stevens Innocent, which is, a, you know, quite a famous law practice. And um, and we played with the idea to write to the British Airport Authority. <laughs> I mean, in a way, it was never going to go anywhere. Like, it wasn't suing or compensation. But the point about it is that um, when I was still in Glasgow, a week later, the bag appeared in uh, on the uh, you know going around in uh, Dublin on a you know on the luggage conveyor belt thing, and. Um, and they sent it back. And I remember coming back to London and, and being reunited with my bag. And the whole point about it is that in the bag was this stowaway. So then I took it on this imaginative journey. You know, she stowed away from Port Lincoln in Australia to Falmouth in, in Cornwall, England. I'd been at Falmouth School of Art and that was obviously a connective thread. So I was investigating the local newspapers, Falmouth Packet, and, and then I found out that there was an article actually about her, and that's where I learned her name was Jean Genie, because she was only captioned as Girl Stowaway in the Hertzkin Cecile, which was the name of the, <coughs> the, the, the 
uh, boat, the ship that she had stowed away on. But then after that, when we're not in the process of that, I was photographing um, uh, or trying to photocopy the stowaway uh, article that I from Hertz and Cecile that I'd found in the Falmouth packet or something anyway. And then Jean Jeannie came on the radio, and 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 then and then the connection between Jean Genet and Jean Jeannie. And I remember going down, it was just like one of those, and I really believe in this, when you're open to things happening, things happen. And so I was open to the idea, of, I mean, I was thinking, and there, and I went and bought G. Genie, the record, the single, and the record label was Titanic, I remember, you know, so, and that literally on that same day, or within that same week, there was a, a little a little edition of um, Jean, Jean Genet's uh, Death Watch, in the window in Charing Cross Road. And again, death watch, you know, it's the language of, of maritime language. And um, so I just framed them, it was a, you know, the three, and I called it the Jean, the Jean Genie, Jean Genie, Jean Genet trilogy, and then the newspaper articles, and that was it, that was the work. And eventually, I had so many little newspapers left over that I made these little paper boats, so that the artifice actually was clear for those that looked. But then, are you talking about the next part of the... Because <laughs> the, the, then I decided to make a f film about it. Um, I wanted to, you know, it, imagine that there was Super 8 film or 16 mil film of, of her on board. I'd, I'd met this guy who could, you know, who had a, a wooden boat. It was all very, you know, in a way, kind of charming and homemade and <laughs> very early you know, young artists work. And then we'd filmed uh, this young, this woman I'd saw at the cafe, uh, Italian woman, and she played the girl story. And, it, and all these things happened like, you know, I wanted to get it printed, exposed by someone who could do it. And then they over, you know, massively overexposed it, or I did because the camera was wrong and we lost one. And so I ended up taking it to a lab. But, you know, all these things happened. And then I ended up getting this very, very beautifully, almost, a, you know, a disappearing, I mean, literally was so over, you know, it was in and out of the image. It worked very, very beautifully than if I'd tried to deliberately do it. So it was, and then the, the, and then deciding to go and film the wreckage of the boat, which had this boat, this famous boat, Hertzke and Cecile, had actually sunk off the coast of Devon, which was the most amazing thing, actually. And, uh, and then it sank in Starhole Bay. And as you know, filming there that day, um, they like this little kind of trace in the water, was the day that, um, you know, be with this guy who, whose boat I'd filmed on before, and walking back, he, you know, he bumped into this young, you know, Scottish woman who was working in the hotel, who was then, you know, subsequently murdered. And, uh, and I remember, you know, we had the camera equipment. We'd we'd camped that night above the Hertzke Cecile, and the next day we filmed and we got up. And I remember taking, you know, needing to get more film from the car, and it was quite a long walk along the Crith path when I could walk. And I remember there was this moment when, you know, there was a, a kind of a, a, a sort of. Uh, um, a stile or a fence or something you had to climb over. And then this little cliff part went to a really dank, dark, wet 
there were puddles and it was kind of and all this I just all the skin all the hair on my skin just stood up I had this kind of primal animal fear I just felt absolutely just terrified in that moment and then uh, just walked on and 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 got out into the sunshine again and picked up the film and I thought oh my god maybe I'm just falling in love or whatever and um and I came back with the film and and then we we shot the film and then we packed up the equipment and when we he, and the guy I was with went and picked up the remains of the equipment and that's when he bumped into this woman and subsequently the man who murdered her so we became the sort of witnesses in this a uh, murder inquiry and we had to go to Newton Abbott and be questioned separately and and um you know we had to draw the maps of where we'd stayed and like and you know and our maps were completely different which didn't help and i think the guy was with it was who i was with became a sort of suspect briefly because he had a big rainbow on his car and was a bit of a sort of <laughs> but um you know and i remember the guy and the policeman in Newton Abbott saying to me you know something so terrible now but i remember him saying don't worry darling you're not the type to get murdered <laughs> as if there's a type to get murdered it was just awful mm. but then what happened subsequently is that the man who did kill this woman um um had been camping in that wood that had been in that wood where i got the sort of animal fear mm. and he must have been he must have observed me and you know and i don't know i think i was it was it's terrifying to think about and mm. probably he knew i was with someone else mm. but this you know this woman just was walking in and she was working in a hotel she was just walking in a terrible terrible horrible thing so the the, the whole courting of coincidence at that point kind of went south it went you know became something that maybe it was a dangerous thing to do and i and i thought uh, um that whole experience was quite sort of a big um learning curve actually but i mean uh, i now i still trust in the sort of kind of chance or unconscious process more than um more than perhaps is wise in terms of you know entering into projects mm -hmm. that you don't know like i'm just about to enter into project i have no idea what i'm going to do how did you know that this experience could become an artwork. Because what you're doing right now and what you did in that lecture is recount quite a gripping story of a, a series of unlikely coincidences. And through a more direct engagement with those coincidences and a recording of them uh, and then a retelling of them and a reenactment of them, this becomes an art practice. The retellings, the recordings are also occurring across different mediums. And I think this sense of surprise um, and wonderment and discovery and this feeling of still being sort of lost but in awe is a feeling I get when I think about your work generally. <laughs> I mean, coming here today, I was kind of scared and lost. <laughs> and looking at your, your body of work, I felt like I was out at sea in a drift 
and that, or like it's a sensation of sand slipping through your fingers, and yet still the sense that there is some continuity. You have to surrender like Tristan and just follow the current, you know? Mm -hmm. The trouble is, is that, you know, I've always negotiated this line between the narrative aspect of what it is, like the good yarn, you know, to use a, an appropriate description, and the economy of the work. And it's a strange discipline, the economy of the work. So, you know, with a work like Girl Stowaway, it was a collection of ciphers in a way. And I mean, I was a sort of aware of that. Um, you know, you had the newspaper articles, you had the three, the, the record and the book and the photo of Jean Genie. And then um, there was a po found postcard of the wreck. There's, you know, little paper boats made of the newspaper article. There's a film, you know, and eventually the final thing I did was to, you know, make a, a, a video and it was a video, one of my only ones, of trying to put a, a, a you know, putting a, how to put a boat in a bottle, you know, so kind of tried to remake the Hertzke Cecile and put it in a vacuum, you know, put it at corking and, um, and yeah, no, I think it was a, I remember at the time showing it at the British Art Show and, you know, and there were two blackboard drawings as well. So in a way, and I've always had a, a plethora of media, mediums, uh, different, um, and that was a case example, you know, there was a blackboard drawing, there was this, that, and the other, there was, and so I remember the time, the, you know, around 95 when I showed it in the British Art Show, and it was caused, you know, people, like, was massively dismissed, and, um, and was it an installation, I remember wrestling with that word, no, it was more like a presentation. And I mean, I was trying to find my form, and, there's, and the point is, is there has never been a singularity of form with what I do. And that's something I've had to work to my advantage over a long, long stretch, because initially it annoyed people. There wasn't one medium, there wasn't one thing, you know, was I that? Um, how can that artist make that and that? And, but I can't be bound by one representation, one presentation. It's, um, you know, I, and I, I'm sorry if it's, I suppose I don't see it as a confusing thing, but I imagine that maybe it is a bit, um, you know, quicksand, I don't know what you want me to say. <laughs> but is it the content or is it the form? I don't know. Or the lack of solidity that is making you lost? Well, the thing is, I feel quite good being lost. <laughs> <laughs> Even though I said, I think I was anxious because I'm always anxious before a conversation. Mm. But I never prepare questions in the same way that maybe you never have a map for the work you're about to do. I mean, I, the lack of map, which is real and, um, and uh, well, you know, especially for a work 
as as enormous as Antigone, which was the work I did for the Royal Academy, to not have a map for such a work was absolutely uh, terrifying. And it's it's relying on something that I'm completely unaware of in my conscious, you know, is just, it, it really is a terrifying place to be. And that often only in retrospect do I see that everything sort of makes sense, but it's, and I'm right there right now because I'm just about to go and make a film. I have no idea what I'm doing. And um, I really genuinely have no idea what I'm doing. I mean, I've got the, I've set the frameworks, a framework, you know, I've hired the space, hired the crew, got the format, uh, got, you know, rented the lenses, all ahead of something, but actually what I'm going to do, I do not know. And I never liked this particular moment. I, it, um, you know, I, it, I wish I was, you know, I wish I was so clearer about what my subject is, but I never am. In relation to this project, Antigone, mm. you said somehow I was only able to keep faith in the work if I'm blind to its final manifestation. And the sense of blindness as being integral to your creative process has a really strong connection to the medium you're drawn to as well, that being film. Mm -hmm where there's a real gap or lag between the moment of capturing a phenomena or an encounter and processing or editing it. It goes on to the celluloid. It sits in a canister. <laughs> you bring it back to the dark room and then you see it. Also, oftentimes you do multiple exposures on the film and you've made these elaborate aperture gate masks, which cordon off certain parts of the film, which you will then record over at a later point. So we have a kind of almost collage or palimpsest of recordings on one reel. Well, recordings is not the right word somehow for film. Absorptions, I don't impressions. Know. Uh, um, it's a, a funny, this is what I mean about semantics. It's uh -huh. quite, recording somehow is much more a digital word, huh. you know, in a way. What do you call Exposures, it? Exposures. Exposures. Yeah. It's funny, and you're the first person to hear this in a way, other than my crew, but our language with our masks um, is so close to the language suddenly adopted by the world for COVID because we, we would do masks, masking, mask tests, mm. you know, and it was exposure, it was every, all the languages mm, mm. so similar. <laughs> it was just like we were talking, like, have you got the masks, you know, <laughs> and, and we know what that meant, but it's just like, you know, no, I have to go to a chemist, no, not those masks, you know, uh. it was like, um, but you're right about the, it's just dealing with the geometry of one, uh, the frame. Which is every, familiar to everyone because it's every sort of diagram of a film strip. But it's a, it's a sense of blindness inherent to that medium that I'm interested in. Yeah. And this, I think, brings us back in into a discussion about this distinction between the analog and the digital, where in digital processes, there's a kind of infinite possibility 
of iterations, of options, and the results are almost instantaneous. In analog processes and in film in particular, there is this long duration between recording and reviewing and producing. It's more profound than that though. I mean the... <laughs> film, uh, the aeroplane effects. Uh, the, you know, why one I think is so important about film is, is exactly that, is its internal discipline because, um, you know, th there are, of course, infinite possibilities as well with film, but the difference is quite profound because with, I don't think, and I'm quite a strong believer in that not everything we do in a deliberate moment, I call it the deliberate act, I'm quite into the non-deliberate act, and that's what film and analogue gives me. I don't think, and I make an analogy, you know, film is obviously made in, in darkness, but everything in digital somehow is with the lights turned on. And, you know, you can, you, you see what you're doing, and then it allows other people to parallel see what you're doing and there's therefore the mystery is is gone and it's often overthought and in that way overwrought and I think digital cinema has suffered badly from that actually because it because it has too much possibility whereas film particularly you know the blindness of it means you know, you're already, you're also, you're always, already having to work with a series of limitations. So the limitations being, you know, are that it's a very active medium, you know, you're, um, you're controlled by time, which I think is incredibly important. You know, for me, like, this takes, a, a, you know, a three-minute, approximately three-minute film, you know, if I had a, a better camera, it would be 10 minutes, you know, a 400-foot roll. This is a 100-foot roll, yeah. So 400-foot is like 10, 11 minutes. So you have got, you're bound by this period of time, which calls, you know, means it's very decisive. So within that, the, you know, and of course the, the blindness is really, really profound, especially for... Um, for the masking. And I don't think, to be honest, I don't think anyone really has a handle on what that means in terms of how profound that blindness is. Um, you know, and camera, of course, is Italian or Latin for room. So it literally, this here is a dark, you know, this is a dark room. So, um, you know, there's all this stuff that goes in here that you never know what's going on. And you don't even know when you're shooting just one thing, because you know the a lot of things go, mistakes happen, exposures, you know, scratches, whatever. Mm -hmm. But also great things happen. You know, the, there's a flare that you don't know is happening, and all this stuff like that. Things go wrong inside a camera mm -hmm. uh, that sometimes go in order to go right. And I think that's very, very important. That does not happen so much in the digital realm because you can see it the whole time. You're just looking at it, you can see it, you can adapt it, you can change it, you can correct it. So you're overriding its, 
its you know its uh, medium uh, fundamentals in a way the fundamentals of the medium what's integral to the medium so with the masking you know um, and with Antigone it was it just reached an extreme position because I was just like filming you know mist in Bodmin Moor and then putting that roll of film walk back into the can to six months later being in Yellowstone Park and, and filming steam next to it, steam and mist in the same frame, you know, magical things, magical things that are happening inside the dark room. And yeah, for sure, you could, well, that's what I mean is you can copy it digitally, but you can never get the, the things that happen as a result of that. It was really the camera and the moment of that camera making and the moment of the film and all that stuff happening inside the dark room. And I can't mm. really explain other than there's something mm -hmm, mm -hmm. magical in that. And it's, it seems like it has to do with these ideas of chance and fate and luck. Yeah, and they're imbued in the medium, I think. I think that's why I can't go and work in, an, in another medium, in a digital medium, because it doesn't allow for any of that. It's too conscious, it's too aware of itself, the lights are on. It's interesting though, because we're all familiar with digital glitches and this idea of a ghost in the machine. I mean, it is, it is possible, but I understand that... They're not beautiful. Someone, this effects guy told me years ago when I was effect working on film, he said mistakes with film are beautiful, uh, can be beautiful. Digital mistakes are just... They're never beautiful. <laughs> very clear. And it's really true that some sort of mistakes can, in analogue, in photochemical, mm -hmm. because they're about light and chemistry often, mm -hmm. not about pixels and glitches. Mm. And I mean, I don't... I, I mean, that's my aesthetic. Yeah, I mean, it is an aesthetic distinction, but it also, this is maybe a road I don't want to go down with you. I think mm -hmm. what I want to do instead is talk more about this black box beside you, uh, this analog interior, this little room of chance and fate to some extent and serendipity and coincidence. Um, because the kind of things that have happened in there for you, in a way, they feel like they only could have happened to you. <laughs> and the reason I say that is because you're the kind of person who can go walk in a field of clovers and come back with a handful of four-leafed ones. You collect all kinds of things that point to a strange openness or there's almost a kind of mystical collection of coincidences that seem in a way uncanny or too good to be true. And this recounting of the girl stowaway anecdote is case in point in a way. Mm. So you were an artist in residence at the Getty, I think in 2014. Um, and you had to propose to them a research project. Mm -hmm. I know, otherwise they wouldn't let me come. And the, it's interesting when artists need to formalize a process and articulate it, um, because the formal formulation you came up with was unconscious search, the importance of objective chance as a tool of research. And maybe this is a, an odd way of formulating what I was fumbling with. <laughs> <laughs> so, could you talk more about 
um, the work that entailed from that proposal? First of all, I guess what the title means to you and then the work that entailed from it. Uh, the importance of objective charts, the title, mm -hmm. because the project became, in the end, uh, Money Hates Me. Mm. Um, I actually think, genuinely, it's a very good way to research, is to not knowing what you're looking for. And what is objective chance exactly? Is it just that? To well, not know? objective chance is, I mean, I, you know, I always say that I really am a, a dilettante on this issue, but you know, it's a hazard objective, you know, it's Breton, André Breton, surrealist idea of, of just allowing your parcours or wherever you're going to be interrupted by encountering something. And um, years ago, in fact, with Girl Stowaway and the ICA, this writer, a you know, said that my work was like this as our objective, you know, and I mean, it's the first time I'd heard of it, so I actually, f um, and it was actually a very apt and way of, of describing it, and I think, I, you know, what it means is that I do let my, you know, I'm, my journey is my parkour, or, I mean, there isn't really a good English translation of that, but my, the direction of which I'm going is never fixed and I will always allow myself because I don't know where I'm going therefore I'm very able to change my direction you know I do think that you know therefore I did literally go into the Getty the GRI Getty Research Institute and say that box and and some the guy from the the the, the scholar the 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 employee, employee of the Getty, I don't know his title, special collections person, he literally got up on a ladder, brought it down, and we opened it up, and it, it had the key of Rodin's studio in there. Mm. And that, I mean, you couldn't get more random than that. There was nothing, <laughs> I mean, it was a really quite a, quite a sort of insignificant Malvina Hoffman, you know, archive, she'd given somehow, they got it, because it's a collection of oddities, really, the Getty collection. And so, I mean, that just, there's, that's actually bare random. There's nothing, <laughs> there's nothing kind of, you know, in excess of that at all. Uh -huh. I mean, it was literally that box. You know, it was literally, I could have chosen any box and could have gone in any direction. And I guess the only thing is that, is that I have the audacity to do that because I believe in it as a nourishing process. Mm. That's exactly it, I think. The sense of audacity that comes with being a certain kind of artist, where there's a the sense of empowerment or even entitlement in confronting a given situation as being worthy of being translated into art or worthy of somehow addressing or confronting. Like I'm thinking of you making this big deal of calling up a lawyer and a journalist and writing your own article for the Girl Stowaway, which in a way parallels the kind of activism you're doing around the preservation of film now, where you've galvanized a whole movement um, connecting with the film industry in Los Angeles, but also the producers of the medium um, Kodak specifically, 
to really change the course of things. Well, when that happened, I just couldn't believe no one else was doing that. I remember, and also it's partly because I felt profoundly desperate in a way, because I knew how integral what, what I'm doing was to the medium. I just, you know, and there were a lot of people when I first wrote the 16 millimeter article, um, because that was the for how it started, is that when, that when Soho Film Lab closed, I wrote this article for The Guardian about, and at that point it was just 16 millimeter, about how this had happened. And, um, and there were a lot of, com I remember it was the, probably one of the few times I actually did read all the comments in The Guardian. <laughs> and a lot, you know, of course, a lot of it was a massive amount of digital aggression against me. But there was one that said, um, oh, she's, you know, she's a fine artist, she'll find, you know, she'll be all right, she'll find another way. And I, I don't doubt that I would have found another way, but I do, it's not just the, the making of the work, it was also the showing of the work, everything I'd done historically, because it really, really matters to me. So for me it was existential, it really did feel existential. And, that, uh, that, and therefore no one else was doing it. So I had to do it myself. And the thing about Chris Nolan, it's quite interesting because he comes with, he's, we're vastly different people. Um, he's very technical, you know, he's really an amazing man. Just for listeners who aren't familiar or would recognize Christopher Nolan as, the, as a director who you're talking about now, who you've collaborated with on these. Well, he was, I mean, yeah, he's directed, um, yeah, well, Batman, that's what he's famous for mainly, isn't it? <laughs> but he's, uh, he's filming a, a film about uh, Oppenheim mm. now, and he, um, is it Oppenheimer? Oppenheim. And he uh, um, did Dunkirk, obviously, uh, and Inception, which is the one I think is the most famous one. But the, the point about him is that he really came from totally other end of the spectrum but he was passionate and is passionate about saving film. And so we met as complete um, opposite. I came from art and he came from industry and, and you know, thank God he, you know, he empowered me to be able to take on, to talk, because of course art, you know, in a way I had um, the language. I didn't have anything else because of course it's a world entirely about money. And um, and Chris has the power, and in that way, and I, but I had I have in a way the the language, or the way of the rhetoric, the persuasive yeah, power. Um, well, he has that too. I don't mean to offset. I'm just saying that art. You know what art could bring was the idea of medium, mm. and not just medium per se, but also medium specificity really important little kind of nuances of things mm. which are really important to, this, to the protection of film. I'm just conscious I'm still, I'm holding Rodin's key in my hand. Okay. <laughs> and you're bored with, you know. No, 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 but I think we were talking initially about your research methodology of objective chance and how this discovery of Rodin's key couldn't have been more random. I want to understand like what you do with that. What did I do with having found Rodin's key? Yeah. <laughs> Well, nothing at that point. I just then found other things. Uh-huh. And um, until, 
You know, the thing which is really interesting is that none of it gets resolved until it gets resolved at the last minute. So I found Rodin's key and a lock of his hair, and then I went on this whole other strange journey, finding bits and pieces here, and then I had a whole, um, you know, pile of images, basically, and then I was, and it became a sort of insurmountable project in a way because I just had this huge amount of material from the disparate material, of course. And um, and then the pandemic happened, and this was five years later. And and if it hadn't been for the pandemic, Money Hates Me would definitely not have existed. So in a way, that was the sort of par part and parcel of that happening too. And then only using all these disparate elements, I ended up, of course, making them into 50 objects. But the main thing is also then I wrote this this book called Mona Hates Me. And the book is the thing that where suddenly it's just the strangest thing and it happens the same when I edit a film or when I I write. It's just all this nascent information, all these nascent things suddenly have resonance that I don't even notice until I write the text or make the film. It's, an, it's only at the very end of the process, which is the making of the, the, the singular singularity of the final work, does the, does the impact of all this disparate journey and collection make any sense. So, for example, with Monet Hates Me, it's, it's, a, it's a bit of a difficult example because the film, and, not, not the film, but the... the portfolio or the edition and the, the book, you know, retains some of the disparate elements for sure in it, in its final form. But a work like Antigone, where you have all these disparate elements, and then I have to edit it. And, and I, I mean, that one is, that film had so many profound things in it that I really did not realise until the very end, you know, only in retrospect. So much of it is to do with realising in retrospect. So, you know, the blind, you know, the blindness of the, um, you know, having to, the only way through was to make it a double, the resonance of the, you know, left eye, right eye, the Oedipus blindness, the blindness of the means to make it, which was the, the masking. And then my own profound blindness. And then it all... You know, even Yellowstone, I mean, Yellowstone was came about as a just as a mistake because mm -hmm. I looked at the eclipse, the line of totality, even the eclipse. I mean, Jesus, when I set out Antigone, I did not know that there was going to be an eclipse in America. And it was just talking to my beloved friend, Dick Torchia, about who we, who's, we do on these eclipses together, going back to, dating back to Madagascar. And he said, you know, there's an American eclipse in 2017. And I was at that moment, I thought, I have to film the eclipse in Antigone. But I didn't think about it in relation to blindness or, you know, that didn't make, I didn't have that conscious thought, if you know what I mean. Mm -hmm. I never have the conscious thought. But maybe I've got the thought somewhere deeper in me, but consciously I'm not computing that. And then I looked at the totality and I thought, oh, look, it goes through Yellowstone. <laughs> <laughs> It was, 
hundreds of miles away from Yellowstone. <laughs> but Yellowstone stayed in there mm -hmm. just because I misread the map. Mm -hmm. And Yellowstone is, you know, another... I'd always wanted to go there since I saw this thing about Yellowstone and, and Panorama and the supervolcano. But then I remember a certain point say, someone saying, why are we going to Yellowstone? And I was thinking, why are we going to Yellowstone? And yet it was really, really important for the film because, you know, not only, because what I realised is a lot of the film is about the oracle, about, you know, and Antigone's fate is about oracle and, you know, the whole Oedipal complex, the whole Oedipus myth comes from the oracle and the trickster that the oracle is, um, which is quite interesting in terms of how I, um, you know, find myself too in relation to, f to fate, etc., etc. But the whole, the, you know, when the reading of the oracle was Pythia, she was um, the priestess who was reading the, the, um, the vapours coming up from the ground. And of course, it makes perfect sense that they are, we are there. And I mean, and that's what I mean, but I did not know that. Not until after it was, it was, it's a weird thing. I promise to God, this is where the blindness is. And this blindness is protective because if I see where I'm going, I'm scared it'll scare me. So I think it's protective. It's a strange thing. Um. I don't like clunkiness. I don't like, you know, anything to be... You know what? My biggest one of the things I really hate is self-consciousness. Huh. And I think it's all to protect myself from that. Mm. I'm not feeling self-conscious right now, but I'm feeling conscious of the listener's experience right now. They're lost. Probably. I familiarize myself with the story of Oedipus and Antigone, but I suspect that a lot of people now won't be. And we'll be feeling divorced from any conversation to do with uh, mythology. No, but it's not about that. I mean, that's the point, right? Antigone is my older sister's name. Mm -hmm. All right? Yeah. Nothing to do with me. Mm -hmm. I was born, you know, Tacita, my name, Antigone, my older, my brother is called Ptolemy. We were given these names. So this word, and it's about the word, my, Antigone, my project, is not about her, her, her myth at all. But it isn't about her. It's about her name and what that means. But it is also about, you know, so Antigone, her father stroke sister is Oedipus. And we all know about the Oedipal conflict. So, so, but you don't know that Oedipus, his name comes from the fact He's got swollen feet. You know, he was left to die on a mountain because of the, you know, the the jink, you know, the the trickster oracle. You know, fooling the father to think that he was going to kill the father, so the father left it. It's a really, but the it doesn't matter. I, you know, I really, I remember when I had an interview with somebody when I was in LA and I was making Antigone, and. This journalist said something which I think you're kind of saying too is like, what's this got to do with the price of cheese? You know, you know, my my listeners don't know about 
uh, Antigone or these classical myths anymore? Mm. You know, why, you know, do you think it's completely out of date? You know, what, what's the, you know, you're an elite, blah, blah, blah. Mm. And, um, and I said, what do you want me to do? Do you want me to just stop and run for office? Because it was just such a, <laughs> a pointless thing to say, but you have really great writers like, I mean, even Anne Carson mm. is in the film. She wrote the script. No, she didn't write the script. She had a, I used her exactly. poem. And um, she has huge resonance with younger people, but her work is entirely, uh, you know, based in, you know, she's completely erudite, and, but she uses the reference of the classical past as a, and she transcribes it into a contemporary language that we all understand. Mm. And my, you know, my friend Julie Merritt, who thinks that Antigone is my most political work. I mean, it's just, it's, it's just, yes, the names. I are from I totally understand. I think that this, I don't think this listeners. I don't think your podcast listeners are going to be lost by references to these things. No, and I think, um, I mean, it came up in the AA lecture as well in 1996. At the end, someone was asking. What does this have to do with popular culture? And there is a real, there is a real tension. Um, and what did I say? You dismissed the question as being irrelevant. <laughs> <laughs> and then he came up after and you kind of made peace with each other. But from the very beginning... I get a lot of that, but I, you know, yes, I'm... It's hard, though, because it's mm. like... It's and, like a de devaluing what you do because no, you, no, no. you're not... Um, you know, contemporary culture is not the only language available to an artist. It's just, um, yeah, complicated. I, I, I just, I have to, I suppose, I have to dismiss it. Otherwise, mm -hmm. it would trip me up. So I think that the concern that's coupled with that is the one of medium again. Because my experience of encountering your work is always at a remove. Oh, because I refuse to show my films digitally. I've never, I've never seen a work, <laughs> I've never seen a work of yours before. And yet I'm here because I've seen and heard and read so much about... So you didn't go to any of the three shows? I wasn't in town then. <laughs> <laughs> they stretched a long time. I didn't, if I'm being completely honest... You didn't even know who the hell I was. Well, I did know, actually, because of the most popular thing you'd done in the Turbine Hall, the project And film. you never saw that either. I saw that on Tate Shots on YouTube. <laughs> so my... You had a year to miss that one. <laughs> I, was, I was in Canada. I mean, my encounter of you as an artist and of your work is translated and at a remove. It's a Thomas Demand version of your work. In a way. <laughs> and I wonder if that concerns you, because I imagine a lot of people who encounter your work will have done so through those same processes or through that avenue. But like I mean, why? And I just mean, to, to no, no, no. Why don't I let them being shown on you? Well, you know why? It's partly because I had, and actually during the pandemic, I did loosen this. I did allow some of the films to be shown. Um, in a sort of uh, Zoom video setup in a few situations. But the reason I haven't historically is because of the medium, in order to fight for the medium. If mm -hmm. I allowed my work to be shown 
Uh, and I've, n I've now let student, uh, you know, people, students see Vimeo links, which is a, I have allowed that recently because of exactly that problem, but only, you know, only just in, in sort of student situations and, and mm. as long as they don't project it, mm. you know. It's just the false document, mm -hmm. uh, you know, a digital projection of one of my films is not, is a false document. It's mm -hmm. not the work, it's a facsimile of the work. But that level of nuance, yeah, you see, you're pulling a face because you don't get it. <laughs> because you've never seen one of my films as a film. So you don't get it. You're not understanding it. On I, a I mean, what I'm thinking about is what you make of this question of the work of art in the age of mechanical reproduction, because this is an ongoing concern. Yes. <laughs> no, I know. And, and yet you've removed yourself from, from the process of reproduction. Well, and just to be clear, for, for people who aren't, aren't familiar, um, your work is only ever shown in its native format. So if it's a 16 millimeter piece, it's projected um, with the original equipment. And um, if you're invited to give a talk about your work and show your work, you will only do so if it can be a projected film. And so there are a lot of, the work itself becomes rarefied and less accessible, which I, I understand. Um, I but understand. what choice do I have, really? In a museum, if I believe in the, the importance of medium specificity, all right, I can, and I'm passionate about my medium and passionate to keep my medium and for my work to be shown in the medium in which it was made, what choice do I have? And I think the resistance itself, it becomes a part of the, the work. It's not about resistance, it's just about actuality. I am resisting it as much as any painter would resist having a, 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 you know, a digital 3D printout of their work in a museum. Mm -hmm. it, for me, you, you see, you don't quite get it, but it really is, I have to protect film projection. Mm -hmm. I have to be one of the last hand holdouts for that because I've staked my, you know, I've staked my whole reputation life on it and worked so hard to protect it that if I give up, then everyone else, that you know, all the people I'm trying to, museums that I'm trying to get them to show work in the format, in, in the in the medium in which it was made, it's a constant struggle with museums. And um, I, I've kind of, you know, I'm a bit exhausted about it recently, but I do have put a lot of pressure on institutions like Tate and Museum of Modern Art all this, to show the work in the way it was made. So you go to an exhibition like Marcel Brotier's in, in Museum of Modern Art, and they showed all his films as 16mm. That show was just packed and adored by hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people. And then I've been in a similar situation. Who was it? It's gone out of my head, but there was another artist who uses film, dead, who was dead. And they showed one work, which is improvement, it's one more than zero, one work as film, and then all the others were digital projections. The work that was film was packed. And when I was there, and, and I, I think, yes, of course, 
because it's it's a living and breathing thing and it is different it is qualitatively different that's the point you've never seen it so you don't know but i know film i know the experience of seeing so film. that room was full and his the the digital projection facsimiles that they'd put over there there were you know one or two people putting their heads around the door and going, but it didn't hold the attention that's the point and I've seen that happen with my work, that, pe- that, that people, you know, people, I, I have a, so much resistance, by the way. It's not easy to fight to show the f- workers' film. I mean, it's become a bit of a, a stress, but I am always vindicated because people actually do sit there uh-huh. and watch the film from start to finish, despite the naysaying of the institution. Uh-huh. So now I hope I've got to the point where people know if they invite me. I know Thomas Demand told you, don't say the word video or she'll throw you out. <laughs> so you must have, which is true. Did he say that? He did. Yeah. No, but if I get invited, would, you know, can we show a video by her? I usually take that to mean someone who actually doesn't really know what mm-hmm. I'm doing. And it's going to be, it's not that I'm uh, arrogant in that way, but yeah. I'm just know that it'll become more trouble than it's worth, if you know what I mean. Yeah. And I mean, I, d- the reason I brought it up is because I just had to recount my own experience of encountering your work. But, I mean, it sounds like there's, it's also, you know, in terms of 2018, those f- that was a lot of months that there was a f- film going on. Yeah, I don't... So it's not just my fault, that's what I mean. <laughs> <laughs> to me, it's to encounter your work as it should be encountered, not in a book or as a still or... You can Some bootleg copy. It's you're just talking about the films. You can encounter my work in other forms. Mm-hmm. But I, I mean, to me, the whole experience is not dissimilar to one of witnessing an eclipse. And you had to be there. <laughs> yeah, it lasts slightly longer. These exhibitions last slightly longer than an eclipse, I have to say. But yeah, I mean, I, it's, I get your point. I mean, I'm endlessly having to deal with all these kind of... Um, it's a resistance also to, you know, with, you know, the endless conversations about democratization of medium. And, and uh, I remember being on an interview in Australia. It was like a round table, the equivalent of start the week in Australia a long time ago. And there, you know, and I was talking, doing my thing about, you know, making film. And I remember somebody said... Um, but this is so elite, you know, not, anyone, not everyone can afford film and blah, 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 the whole democratisation of the medium and how important digital is for younger filmmakers and all this stuff like that. I mean, that, that, comes, that uh, direction of the argument, which, of course, you know, there's truth in that. And I remember this man sitting around the table came to... He just said, well, we've had pencils for 2,000 years and not everyone is Leonardo da Vinci. <laughs> I just thought, there, yeah, thank you, sir. <laughs> So, um, you know, I know these arguments, uh-huh. but I have to protect my work and I have to protect something of the survival of the medium, especially print film, which is, you know, print, which is, you know, is the most under threat because a lot of, you know, directors are using negative increasingly, thank God. But they immediately, they just don't go to print. They, you know, it gets uh, immediately telecined and put into the digital realm. And then you get, and then it's just the DCP. So print stock is very, very, is the most threatened part of film right now. 
the ability to go to a cinema and see a projected film as a film is is rare and rarer and it's even you know and on art works it is you know something I have to you know while I'm alive and while I can you know stick by and um I have to say if you go to in a you know I don't know how good London is anymore but you know in LA when they show film people now know when they when it's going to be a film and when it's going to be a digital version of the film and people go to the film version that's the point there is a desire for it it the experience is different and um you know i just have to trust in that tessita thank you so much for your time yeah you're welcome <laughs> Was that scary? I don't know if I wanted to end that way, but because I, I, it's obviously no sign of disrespect, my ignorance of your work in 2018. Well, you're the editor. <laughs> <laughs> you can cut it out. But it's not that. But that's you, but, the, I mean, no, everyone. But the, I have to fight for that. But if yeah. it, it's, um, it's, it's just boring that I have to fight for that the whole time. I think the thing is, my, the way I encounter any any interlocutor for this project is in part through chance. <clears throat> and yet, the chance is much more acute with your work. Once you've missed it, you've missed it. And I think that's the, that was my sadness, I guess. Because mm. I'd missed it in 2018. I was unengaged, uninitiated. And, and now I need to wait for it again. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, well, next year in Paris. But you know, there's also the Dante project, by the way. Right. Which we didn't even talk about. No, but the Paradise is the 35mm film. Mm. It was shown, you know, every night as a 35mm film inside the Royal Opera House. It is different. That was in 2021? Yeah, that was October. And it's coming back next October. And it'll be in Paris in March and Copenhagen in November next year. So that's lots of chances for you to miss it. <laughs> I'll mark it on my calendar. <laughs> that feels like a better place to end. <laughs> Are you still recording? Yeah. Uh, thank you so much. Scaffold is an Architecture Foundation production. I'm Matthew Blunderfield and I make the show. The theme music is composed and performed by Luke Blair. Subscribe to Scaffold on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and follow the show on Twitter and Instagram at scaffold underscore podcast. If you like the show, spread the word and leave a rating on iTunes while you're at it. Thanks to Tasset Adin. Special thanks this week to Sam Tremayev and Michael Mack. Thanks as always to Skandal Lynn. And thanks to you for listening. I'll see you next time. Hold up. What was that? 
boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.